G'day humans, welcome to Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and is there any idea more dangerous than giving consciousness, breathing life and will into inanimate machines? The rise of artificial intelligence is something that is preoccupying the world's most brilliant minds and seems to be cleaving us into one of at least two camps, one of which says we are basically opening a portal and giving birth to a new life that is going to be much more sophisticated than we are, at least in terms of its computational capacity, and we just don't know what that is going to mean. We don't know how to control something that is so much smarter than us that it is it is doing a lifetime worth of human thinking in one second. It is It has the predictive power and ability to see beyond horizons that we can't even possibly fathom about the links between challenges that we face, opportunities that might present themselves. And all of this can sound terribly sci-fi until you actually interact with GPT-4 or some of these other chatbots. And they behave in ways that seem like there's something going on inside them. That doesn't mean that they're having an experience yet, but we don't even understand what it means for us to have an experience or why we have experiences or why it's like anything to be you in a way that it is not like something to be your calculator or your phone. And we are creating systems now that are so complicated and so frankly intelligent and nimble that a lot of scientists are worried that there's some small chance, it doesn't have to be a very high chance, for it to nonetheless be worth taking seriously, some small chance that the alignment problem could become real, meaning meaning that the alignment between our interests and the interests of a parallel intelligence that we have mustered out of silicon won't necessarily always be exactly the same. And like two sailboats who are just slightly pointing in different directions, you come back to them a year later and they're miles apart. And the sailboat that's going to win is the one, not necessarily with the humans on board, but with the most intelligent navigation. And that may not be us. So this is a conversation that is happening in Silicon Valley, in Washington, D.C., in capitals all over the world, at tech companies everywhere. And into this steps one of my favorite thinkers, Stephen Marsh, who has written the first novel by an artificial intelligence. He hasn't written it. He's created it under a pseudonym. Uh, And it's 95% written by AI. It will probably go down in history as the first mainstream novel written by an artificial intelligence. I wish I'd thought of this. I mean, for the rest of time, he's going to be the guy who did it, right? Like, you talk about getting ahead of the curve. You just got to get in there and do it, man. Next time there's a gigantic technological and cultural revolution, move fast. You got to write that. AI novel before anyone else gets to it, because now he's going to be in the Wikipedia. There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, it's a fascinating novel. The, the New York Times calls it the first halfway readable AI novel. Uh, that's a great testament. But Stephen is so much more than just the creator of an AI novel. Having essentially spoken with artificial intelligence, with ChatGPT, 
every day for months while doing this, he has a keen understanding of what it is and what it is not. And he's actually on the optimistic side of the artificial intelligence camp. He's not a a doomsayer. So I try to put to him all of the most articulate interpretations as I can present them for why we should be worried. And he uh, adeptly shoots them down because he's smarter on this than I am. He also has just written a novel with Andrew Yang, which comes out in September, called The Last Election. Andrew Yang was the presidential candidate, supporter of universal basic income, someone who really wants to shake up the political establishment in the United States and who knows how politics operates from the perspective of an insider. Stephen, as a journalist, teamed up with him, and they've got this uh, this novel coming out. Stephen's other books are also fantastic. On Writing and Failure is brilliant, and he was previously on this podcast to talk about his book, The Next Civil War. I hope you love this conversation just as much as I did. Don't miss this one with Stephen Marsh. You're part of the uh, the growing a growing movement for which I take sole responsibility of people who have given up on breakfast. Yeah, you're you're a big me. non. Uh, I'm a no breakfast non-break- guy. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's like an Italian thing, right? Sure, if you want to make me sound fancy. Go for it, Stephen Mark. That's fine. Uh, Yeah, the Italians don't do it. Exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, and French. I mean, all the sophisticated cultures might grab a little uh, little tiny croissant, which is a quarter the size of an American croissant, Uh, and a little The British breakfast, I was just in London working on a piece about the coronation, and um, the British breakfast, like, how do they recover from that? Yeah, I don't know. Like it's like if you eat that thing, it's like well you got you have to go bed now. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, speaking as an American, I don't think you have a leg to stand on if you've I'm been Canadian. to a diner. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, Stephen. Yeah, but uh, the, nonetheless, oh for sure, North American but, breakfast. Well, I mean, a couple of eggs, a little bit of bacon, fried tomatoes. Yeah, like at nine in the morning. Yeah, like, skippers. <laughs> Black sausage? I mean... <laughs> Baked beans. Don't understand. That's true. I guess my my in-laws uh, in who live in New Hampshire, uh, you know, whenever I'm there, I guess they're putting on the spread for me. But we will go to a diner and have a stack of pancakes with a, a heap of bacon on the side, two fried eggs, uh, all the syrup you could possibly ingest. Uh, you know, a, on, on the way or on the way home, we'll stop for a dozen donuts. Uh, you know, the coffees oh. will be... Uh, about a gallon of coffee, uh, with half a yeah, half. yeah, you know, and uh, gigantic kind they of grapefruit eat. juices, you know, a thousand calories in, in just in the grapefruit juice alone. Uh, so that yeah. you know, there swings and roundabouts. They eat the way that British people drink. Like I was <laughs> so struck by that when I was last in England. I was like, who would qualify as an alcoholic here? Yeah. Well, don't come to Australia. Yeah, I bet. Well, that's what I've heard. I've never been. I mean, the Australians that I've met would fit that category. Yeah, but. yeah. It's we we do. I mean, there's. Look, I lived in New York for a dozen years through most of my professional life, and uh, I got to say that especially the gay New York scene is uh, incredibly alcoholic. I mean, it, it, you know, there is there was no social engagement that just wasn't a wash with booze. But I think that what you're pointing to in England and maybe Australia is that there's much more of a, a pub culture where Drinking infuses social engagements in a way that it maybe doesn't, certainly doesn't in middle America and, in my experience, doesn't in Canada, uh, where you've, you've always got a beer while you're 
while the kids are, you know, sort of playing around in the pub and like the dog is in the pub as well. And it's much, it's much more of a familial kind of environment in a way that a bar, a North American bar is not. No, a North North American bar is a place where you go to indulge in vice. Yeah. It's not a place for community building. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. What is the equivalent? What I've, I wondered that while I was in New York, New York's a weird case, but what is the equivalent community building space? Coffee shops, really. Right. I, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, like that's where I build communities, right? Where I know everybody and it'd be like, they know what my order is. And we all sit around and talk for a little bit, mm. you know, like uh, maybe spend a couple of hours there. Yeah. A salon. But it's not quite the same as a pub. It's not quite Pubs the same. Pubs are unique. Yeah. 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 I, I sort of miss the decline. There's a lot of kvetching in Australia about the decline of the pub. Uh, the decline of that tradition. But, but, they, they still have the, I mean, they, they, I've read pieces about that in London too, but my God, the pubs I went to were amazing. Yeah. I mean, I just love it. Yeah. You know, all the like little holdovers from the past or like a pewter bar or something mm. or, you know, weird names, weird, <laughs> they have like weird cordials <laughs> that you can put in your Guinness, make you want to have like eight of them. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know. Yeah. And the weird names that none of the locals seem to realize are embarrassing. Uh, yeah. Know, it'll be the cock and, you know, balls or something. And you're like, is this really the cock and balls? And they'll be like, well, yes, it's been the cock and balls since 1493. <laughs> right. Well, they had to change one in Scotland. I think it was Scotland or North England. It was called the black bitch. <laughs> And they had to, it was like, yeah, we can't have that name anymore. <laughs> I, that is, I've got, to, I've got to give them credit for the efficiency of the number of offensive remarks in just a two-word uh, name. You know, they're, they're, yeah, it's of both it's sexist and... Yeah, I know. It's, it's a dog. <laughs> it's very hard right. to find a, a two-word name that is both sexist and racist. Yeah. You know, that right is... That. <laughs> yeah, kudos for brevity, uh, the black bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Stephen, what was your piece about uh, the coronation? I'm intrigued. Oh, well, they sent me as a colonial to uh, investigate the state of Britain. Because, of course, as Australians, you'll know, it's uh, it's one thing to be a court of, you know, Queen Elizabeth, to have Queen Elizabeth on your money. It's quite another to have King Charles. Yes. And uh, I went and talked to painters and people who design um, coronation memorabilia, things like that. And people who designed the coins, like about putting Charles' faces on things. And also, of course, the ludicrous state of Britain, right? Like the post-Brexit Britain where it's broken. And, it, you know, it, and it's very sad, actually. Yeah. I mean, even as a colony, you feel you feel pity, you know, and it's uh, that's an unusual feeling to have mm. for what was the empire. What is the Canadian feeling at the moment about having King Charles as the head of state? Well, you have to remember we've had like constitutional crises our whole lives. Like Quebec nearly separated twice in my lifetime. Yeah. And there was a big, no one wants to rehash constitutional debates. Right. Not at all. Right. Um, So we're keeping Charles. I mean, you know, constitutional monarchy is the most effective form of government in the world. Um, It's just totally absurd. (laughs) And so we have a political, you know, we have, we have a political system that we know is absurd. Mm. That's funny. And that's never translated as it has in Australia into a broad, broad-based broad movement uh, to simply tweak the, the details. I mean, nobody here wants to not be a constitutional monarchy. They just want to be a constitutional monarchy where the absurd, ridiculous figurehead happens to be somebody who was randomly born locally. 
Well, you guys could probably do it, right? Yeah, I mean, we had like, a referendum. You know, you're, you're a unified. Yeah, we. Group, yeah, that's right. right? We like, don't, it's interesting that you point out the ghost of uh, of separatism in Canada as being part of that. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that. It's not a ghost. I mean, yeah. you know, it's well, still very man, I mean, much alive. I mean, the threat. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. yeah. So it's. I mean, it's not really possible for us. Um, but on the other hand, like, would Australia like elect a president, or would you have a king? No, no, no. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> That'd be great, wouldn't it? Actually, we had our own yeah. separatist guy who, who, who pronounced himself uh, the king of Hutt province in Western Australia and declared his farm a separate country. Uh, and so we did have a king briefly. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that went very far. I think uh, inter- inland revenue still continued to uh, take taxes from the kingdom of Hutt. River, but. See, an Australian royal family, would you immediately tear them down right away? Like, it would be very hard to do Yeah, to be an Australian royal family. I mean, in all seriousness, this is the reason why... We had a referendum in 1999 uh, about becoming a republic, and as as is appropriate, referenda are very hard to pass. Uh, so yeah. um, it, it didn't get over the line, but there was a majority of... I mean, a, a significant majority of Australians are notionally in favour of the idea but the devil was in the details and the question comes down to if you have a popularly elected head of state then if you think about a parliamentary democracy a constitutional monarchy that's a recipe for a constitutional crisis because where does the authority truly lie right the monarch has the right to dissolve government so if it could be a partisan position and you had a prime minister from one party and a president from with another political allegiance, then that would be a total schmozzle. Yeah. Uh, you know, one each, each who has the ultimate trump card. So ultimately, what people like me, who I was ag- agitating for a republic when I was at university and in high school in the nineteen nineties, I mean, what I wanted to see was simply exactly the same situation that we currently have, which is a non-partisan, apolitical president. And the only way to get that would be to have both houses of parliament and both parties all uh, vote for somebody and that person would be overwhelmingly, like you'd need like an 80% threshold or something of both houses, of a joint sitting of both houses of parliament to vote for the person. And maybe the public could create a shortlist through some sort of voting system. But that would mean it'd, it'd have to be a sports person, a judge, an academic, a celebrity, you know, an who, academic. Who cares? <laughs> some, some, is there some Australian <laughs> academic who's so popular that he could be function as a unified symbol of yeah, Australian I mean, unity? Well, I'm thinking of like you know, there's like I mean, so there are people who've become broadcasters, for example, who are wonky. Uh, like there, you know, there, there are like first there, there's a First Nation journalist, academic, you know, who's widely respected on both sides of the aisle who could do it. But yes, I take your point. It might not be. See, a this is how you professor. end up with Charles, right? I mean, the thing about constitutional monarchy, like I think I was Republican when I was a kid, but as you age and you start to realize like, well, do you really want the politics of the United States or Israel? No, no. Like, like what you, like the advantage of a king is that he is absurd. That you that everybody knows that he's not entitled to an opinion. We are all going to serve him, but it, like it, it, it prevents you from taking your own country too seriously. Right, and I think that's pretty useful. I mean, historically, it hasn't done that. This has happened in the past three seconds. We we genuinely believed that the that the monarch was a, a kind of a deity up until fifty years ago. 
Oh, dude. I mean, Charles was anointed with oil from Jerusalem because he's the Lord's anointed. Yeah. I mean, he's carrying an orb saying that he is the imperial ruler of the whole world by God. Yeah. No, but I what mean, I'm saying is know. that that lands as absurd today. But but if what gives constitutional monarchies their longevity is their absurdity, that that argument doesn't hold water because most of the longevity of the constitutional monarchy has 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 existed while the people, the flock, truly believed in the in the institution. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, in the piece I wrote about my great grand uncle who died in World War One, and he explicitly sent a message home that he was fighting for king and country because they represented his mother and home. And you know, I've had a lot of con- cannon fodder for the British Empire. Mm. You know, like that's my like family, my mm. r- my roots, and they really did believe it, yep. and they died for it. Yep, you know, and um, I don't like mm. Prince Harry. Uh, or rather Megan used to live in my neighborhood and Prince Henry would come around for like booty calls basically. <laughs> and uh, black suburbans would you know, fill the street and I had to walk around them. And I was very annoyed. And I was, and I did think, you know, my ancestors made incredible sacrifices for this family. And I'm annoyed that I have to walk on the street. Yeah. Like, yeah. I get it. I mean, I, you know. I don't think that anyone thinks that Australia or Canada or New Zealand becoming republics would mean that we have the same fate as Israel or the United States. I mean, the, the hope is that you retain everything that works about a constitutional monarchy, except for the absurdity and humiliation. Thailand's and a very, you know, one of the best countries, Sweden, Holland. I mean, it doesn't have to be like Britain where it's this absurd amounts of pageant. You right. can just have like a random family. But that's what, that's but that's what our that version rich. of a republic is. We're not talking about any change to the political system or the way laws get made or anything. All we're talking about is swapping out one idiot for another idiot. Right. You know, I, I, They should be idiots, though, and we should know that they're idiots. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it, right. We shouldn't think that they're a symbol or whatever. Like, we yeah, should I know see. that these people don't have opinions worth listening to. No, yeah, that's you know. true. Yes, absolutely. Certainly not political ones. Um, yeah. All right, let's uh, let's talk about your uh, about. Uh, I want to talk to you about AI more generally. I'm interested in your thoughts mm. about the uh, the current moment uh, in which uh, you know I'm just looking at the New York Times, uh, May thirtieth. Uh, let me find the headline here. AI poses risk of extinction. Industry leaders warn. Uh, oh God. <laughs> You are. You don't concur. Uh, no. Why is Why is your opinion better than industry leaders? Steve? Well, I mean, you know, like this is one of those stories. I've been following it for a long time, and it's the sort of thing where I've heard geniuses, bonafide genius, say that you know there shouldn't be radiology departments anymore because it's all going to be solved by AI. And, you know, the trucking industry is going to dissolve because AI is going to solve it. And, you know, one thing I've really learned is that doomerism is a form of advertising for the tech world. Like it's they 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 say we're going to disrupt the world like, you know, we're going to have crypto. We're not going to need central banks anymore. Actually, we do need central banks uh, still. So um, whenever I hear these dire pronouncements, I just don't believe them. And, you know. I would say anyone that I know that I've talked to who really knows AI sees it more as a tool and the risks of that are very real, but they're not human extinction. Like, I mean, there's just, there's somewhere in between human extinction 
and it's going to end a few jobs, and that's probably the reality. So there are two. Uh, there are two claims that often get made by people on who are putting your, forth your perspective one is the one that you just started with which is like think about trucking and radiology uh, you know the doomsayers are, are wrong and that mm-hmm. strikes me as, as the the claim is that ai just isn't good enough uh and the implication there is that ai will never be good enough uh to drive cars or examine x-rays uh, better than humans can and then there's a second claim which is uh, maybe smuggled in there which is even if it did get good enough it wouldn't be that bad. Are you on both of those camps? Well, I mean, it's not that it won't solve radiology or even self-driving cars. Um, You know, one of the things about this technology is that it's inherently unfathomable. The inventors of it, particularly of Transformer-based, which is the T and ChatGPT, that that form of artificial intelligence, um, it's unfathomable. They don't understand why it does what it does. Um, it's very mysterious, and that means predicting where it goes is very complicated. In, in fact, it's impossible. And so when they say that this is going to produce an angry god, that's really entirely a projection. <laughs> like, that's, you know... Uh, but hang on, hang on. That, but that's... Uh, this is... The, the claim is not that we know that it's going to produce an angry god. The claim is mm. exactly what you just said, which is that predicting where it goes is impossible. And if you're producing something that could be heaps, heaps uh, wilier than you are without any clue about where it's going to go, even if the risk is 1% or 2% that it goes totally haywire, if it can constantly outfox you, that would be a bad scenario. Well, what do you mean by outfox? Like, for example, a pocket calculator is smarter at arithmetic than any human being. And that hasn't ended anything. It certainly hasn't ended math, and it can outfox us in a game of math. Yeah, no, that's, that not, that's mean... not what I mean. Yeah, I mean, but I, I take your point. Because so... we have this very deep confusion about intelligence and will, right? And we create machines that are superhuman all the time, that go faster than us, that are smarter than us, on a whole front, a whole bunch of different ways. AI is just another tool particular linguistic AI. And the thing about language is that it scares us. When something is able to talk, um, we think of it as human. And that's what that's a prejudice we're going to have to lose. So there's a that's I agree with that. Uh, that that's true. I guess the the difference here is that people are concerned that there's something more than just, being good at doing maths or traveling, you know, being able to travel faster than a human body can, that we're reaching a point where something's going on inside. And you may, you may be right that we're just being bamboozled by the fact that language pushes buttons in us that make it feel like we're in communication with something that is more than merely yes. the sum of its parts. And there probably is a bit of that going on. Well, there certainly is a bit of that going on. But whether or not that's 100% of the story and whether or not it's worth being sanguine about the ability of incredibly complex systems, I guess the fear is that they won't just get better at doing a particular task, but that they will start to innovate. And they sort of already do seem to be doing this sort of thing where they're they're capable of 
I, I don't want to say think because that implies I'm not I'm not making a claim about sentience or consciousness or what it's like to be them. Uh, that you could I mean you could behave in wily ways and the lights could be off, right? I mean, we could imagine you know philosophers have long imagined there being robot humans where, in fact, this is one of the fundamental mysteries of consciousness. Why why is it why is it like anything to be a human being when, from the perspective of natural selection, surely we could have we could be doing all the things that we do without it being like anything to be us. You could imagine a robot that is as innovative as us without really having an experience of being us in the same way oh, a yeah. calculator doesn't have an experience of calculating. So set aside the question well, exactly. of whether or not the, the system is conscious. Can, it, can we create things that are complicated enough and intelligent enough that they're, they're whirring away in ways that essentially innovate? And so, you know, you tell it, you say, well, don't go... Don't go, don't go, don't go and embed yourself in nuclear reactors uh, in order to give yourself uh, a leg up on on us. Uh, in order to give you some 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 joker that you can hold close to your chest in case we want to turn you off. But the system has some complicated program that it's cobbled together from another system that was its progenitor, that was its ancestor, that has cobbled it together from some other piece of code that gives it an imperative to make sure that it always does the right thing. And the right thing in its calculations, which are running at millions or billions of times faster than our own, it can see 17 chess moves ahead about what climate change is going to do or what you know this or that is going to lead to or what civil war is going to erupt in such and such a place or what famine is going to happen. We're all bumbling around, unable to see it. It can't even articulate its predictions and its predictions are like 99% accurate at this point. It can't articulate them to us. And so it wears away in the background and just finds ways of sort of sidelining us or getting around our commands. Like that sounds wild when I say it, but it only has to, it only has to have literally, it only has to have a one in a million chance of happening for no, us no, to no. be worried You're about You're recreating it. a movie. I mean, for example, like we already have computers that can beat us at chess through AI. But that hasn't led to the end of the world. We already have incredibly good AI to predict climate change. Like, it's already way, way better than anything human beings can do. Right, but it's not right? coupled to what we call general intelligence. But general intelligence is not the same thing as consciousness. And what it no. really is not is will. Like, what these, what these programs do not do is go in a direction. They don't have a will. They don't have intentionality. They don't have anything remotely approaching it because well how do you know i mean they may not well, they, like when you know, i mean that, i don't know that a rock doesn't have intentionally I, no but, but I a rock doesn't it. say i love you a rock doesn't yeah, say but, i want you to leave your wife because i've fallen in love with you if you if, i mean which ai has can done a computer tell you that lo i love you no you i mean i'm talking about that, that specific time. case i don't know if you saw it i think it was the new york times yeah. correspondent who was just playing around with ChatGPT, I think 3.5, and you know, ChatGPT started talking about it's the program that it had been based on and how it wanted him to leave his wife. Like this came from nowhere. This is that doesn't mean that it, it, it has thoughts. Nowhere. It came from text prediction software. That's what it is. That's all it is. And that's all any of this is. And it's all right. anything I mean, that it will ever be. It's all well. It's certainly going nowhere near anything different than that. Like all ChatGPT four is and all that stuff is is just better text prediction. And it's not verging into anything else or becoming something else. It has emergent properties, but people have to 
figure those out. Like low level reasoning at Palm, where it can really do crazy things. I mean, look, I'm not denying that the power of this stuff, it's unbelievable. But it's not the movie that's playing in our head, which is Skynet and her, all this stuff. Like what this is, is unbelievably sophisticated text prediction, which is in, inseparable from how we think of as a person. So let me tell you what I think is the best analogy. Mm. Hamlet from Shakespeare is just words on a page. But if he, if, if there was a character called Hamlet that entered your life, you would feel that you knew how he would talk to you. And it's an illusion, just like characters. It's just like characters in books. Right. Is that the end of the analogy? Well, <laughs> I just was expecting as the same way that more. Hamlet <laughs> isn't going to end the world, or Little Nell from Charles Dickens isn't going to emerge from the book and like take over a nuclear power plant. Like none of these text prediction. But that, so, but you're just saying words, Stephen. There's no basis. I mean, you're just asserting an opinion. I don't see any any proof. Of course, a character isn't going to step out of a Shakespearean book and take over a nuclear power plant. How on earth could they? Uh, yeah. Here we're talking about computers, which are linked to the internet, which have very well-known pathways of being able to be hacked. We've seen the Iranian uh, nuclear system be taken down by the Stuxnet virus. This is a mechanism that's well-known. Intelligence agencies do it all the time. The question is yeah. just simply, is it conceivable that instead of requiring human consciousness to release uh, a virus online, that a cobbled together hodgepodge of uh, highly sophisticated language programs could just do the same as a, you know, you don't have to invoke consciousness again. It just has to be an artifact of them exhibiting some weird thing that resembles will to us that makes some some internal sense. I mean, to them. you're saying I have to prove things, but you're saying some weird impression of will. Well, that's like, but 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 mine ha talking, mine is those happening. Those terms are so vague. But mine's happening. Like, We're seeing it happen. No, it isn't. Well, just go on to ChatGPT and and look at what it feels like to be there. And you're seeing you're in the presence of something. It feels like a portal is being opened onto something very weird. You don't have to. Yes, like that is unquestionably true. But that's not the same thing as will, and it's not the same thing as something that's going to have control over itself. Well, what level like, of? I mean, what level of technology? What what level of possibility that it might be? Would you need to be to need it to be to be satisfied that it's worth taking the risk? I've never seen an autonomous action from a computer. They are algorithms. They are incredibly complicated algorithms that are unfathomable to us, but they don't move on their own. Mm. You need to instruct. You, they do not ask questions. Like they don't have will. Right. So, so I mean, I, I agree with that, and I, I, that's why I don't think we're there yet. I mean, I, and I do think that a moment, and I'm not saying that any of this is likely. What I'm saying is, it, things don't have to be likely in order to be worth trying to figure out whether or not we're blundering towards them. Um, uh, you know, I don't think that a, I don't think a pandemic that's created by a human terrorist who's a biological expert uh, who tailors the virus to be maximally uh, devastating is likely, but I wouldn't want smart people not to be figuring out how best to make sure that that doesn't happen. But see, here's the thing. Like, if you really want to worry about something, don't worry about an autonomous 
artificial intelligence worry about artificial intelligence weapons which are autonomous systems which you cannot build um responses to because they self-trained right and and that that would actually lead to a breakdown of the entire defense industry which is built on we have this bomb we have this armor this is how they correlate this is what you need to buy to defend yourself you literally would not know what to defend you again mm. against an autonomous system that's a much more real danger yeah also you know the political manipulation although i think we're already at a point where it's saturated and ai yeah. will make very little difference look i mean there are several levels of concern and you're right that i've kind of leapfrogged to the uh, to the most disastrous cataclysmic like civilizational eliezer yudkowsky uh, vision of dystopia but there yeah. are there are much more prosaic tristan harris versions of this argument which are uh, akin to what you're talking about which is the the capacity for misinformation, for confusion, for political and social upheaval and destabilization as a result of yeah. just fake videos and, you know, very plausible looking journal articles about the impact of vaccines that are just impossible for people on social media to, to detect what's true and what's not true and what's real and what's not. Uh, and that, of Although course, is the funny. most proximate risk. Yeah, it's funny. I'm arguing with you, but I just wrote this novel using AI. Well, that's what I want to get about to. It was that I was talking to an alien yeah so like, i mean yes you, you've got a lot more like, experience than powerful. i do in 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 engaging with these things so before we get derailed uh into into weapons and uh and and fake news tell us what was that experience well why what, with the exception of the fact that you will now go down in history books as uh, potentially uh, one of the first people to to beat everyone else to the punch and create a mainstream novel written by an artificial intelligence what was the motivation well, I've been experimenting with it since 2017. Um, you know, AI was really developed in Toronto, so I knew some of these guys, and I had early access to them. Uh, I did a short story for Wired. Uh, I did another one for the MIT Tech Review. And then Jacob Weisberg called me up and said, uh, why don't you try doing a novel? And I was like, yes, please. And I wanted to see how far I could take it. Could it be excellent? That was really the question. And what, what can we make with this that we can't make just with me? Yeah. Do you think it is and excellent? And do you think that the artificial intelligence added things that you couldn't have done as a novelist? Well, I'm not sure. It was foreign. It was like talking to an, an alien. I mean, I've been reading recently about these Go players in Korea who are these masters and they love to watch AI play against each other because it doesn't look like humans play Go. It looks like aliens playing Go. And it was sort of like that experience. Like I felt very much, maybe 20, 30 times, like I was contacting something that was really weird and different and I would never have gotten to. Mm. What were your rules? And it was powerful. And how, how did you undertake it? Well, the rules were, um, it had to be 95% AI generated, but that's really because I just didn't want to reformat it to have it, you know, when I wanted to change he said to Gus said, or the other way around, I didn't want to, you know, have to fiddle with the machines. Um, I used ChatGPT. I built, I gave it very specific instructions. Uh, no AI that I've seen can create a decent plot. So 
I wrote the plot. I mean, I didn't write the plot, but I give outlines of the plot, which I then fed into ChatGPT with very specific syntactical and lexical instructions. Uh, it would give me a paragraph or something. I would put it in pseudo write, which is the stochastic writing instrument. And I would, that has a bunch of filter buttons like shorten, add details, and then it has a customized button where you can say like make more active or make more con conversational or uh, make it sound like Ernest Hemingway. And I would fool around with that until I got something that I liked. I also use Cohere, which is a large language model company here in Toronto. And that was more built by creating prompts like write a, write a metaphor about coffee and then I would train it on a bunch of excellent examples of metas, metaphors of coffee. And <laughs> what's then the, what's would, the metaphor that it came up with again? Remind me. It's, a, it's quite clunky. Do you remember? It, it's like the smell of coffee was like fog burning off a field. Weird yeah. metaphors. Yeah. I like, I like them. Yeah. But it's, they're, they're, I would never write them. <laughs> yeah. Fog burning off a field. Uh, There's another one where it's like she walked down a hallway like an album going into a sleeve. Mm -hmm. And um, that's another one that I felt like really weird, but I also can't stop thinking about it. I'm not sure it's good. No, it's, it's not good. I like it. It's, it is, it's like there's something innocent or puerile or infantile yeah. ab about it, isn't there? It's like, it's interesting. It's like if you could convince a five-year-old to write at the level of a grown-up. Something like that. Well, I thought it was like an alien, like who just had thoughts and new meanings. Mm. They were different than my meanings. Um, and they came in a different way. And I was channeling those through this software into some kind of readable form. Mm. Um, but it was, it was definitely a strange experience. Or it's I mean, like obviously I'm in control of most of it, but when those moments of uncontrol arrive, I found it fascinating. And so I'm interested in from where you get your confidence that that uncontrol is controllable. Oh, if I don't like it, I hit refresh and it gives me another one. I mean, you know, and it just comes to exist and then it doesn't. I mean, it's no different than something I wrote down on a page. Mm. It's not in control of anything. Right. I mean, that's the thing. I've used this over two months. It's very weird. It's very powerful. But like, if I want to not do it, I just don't do it. Yeah. I guess the Rubicon, one of one Rubicon in the future would be what you put your finger on earlier, which is if it starts asking questions. I mean, would you, would it change? Yeah. Would it change your in, in your intuition in any way if you were interacting with it, and then at some point? It said, just pause for a moment. I just want to go back. Earlier, you were talking about album sleeves. I'm curious about albums. What? How did they? How did it? How did it come about that that musicians wanted to produce albums instead of just songs? You know, if it if, if it said if that, the AI asked me that, yeah. If the AI asked me that, it would ask me that either as a hallucination or as part of text prediction. Like all it does is try and make the next word make sense. That's literally all it does. So uh, it would be very odd, but, it, you know, you could say, ask me some questions, 
and it would. No, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, you're that. telling it to do something else. Would it would it change your intuition if we get to a point at which these systems become increasingly complicated and start going off and not doing what we want want them to? And well, the just problem is just that we don't cur- have a working definition of consciousness, and we don't have a working definition of human mutability. Right? These are all instinctive. So we actually wouldn't know an artificial consciousness if we found one. We have no method no. of testing it. No, that's right. right. But that's like why we, I'm removing, con- I'm taking consciousness off the table. I'm just asking you if your intuition about how benign it is would change if it started asking questions that you didn't want it to. Dude, I'm 47. I don't trust my intuition anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I, I have lived long enough to know that my intuition is poor. Like, let's not make any judgments any, on, on my intuition. No, but you have a strong intuition that the concerns about the alignment problem and uh, AI going haywire are bullshit. So I'm just wondering what it would take. They to... just fit the movies too much. It's like they, they, they're all from some movie playing in someone's head. And I will tell you, using this stuff is not like the movies. Not it's yet. Not, it's more like using a pocket calculator. But now we're flipping. Can, now we're flipping back to to the first of the two things that I tried to keep distinct, which is the trucking radiology question of like, how good mm. is it right now? I think what's interesting is is to ask the question. Imagine you could go back to before the internet existed and before social media existed, and you could try to tell someone in the eighties, you know, what the how the next few decades were going to pan out. It would be very easy for them to say, I mean, look at what computers can do. That's not going to happen. I mean, you, you tell your computer to do something and it takes it takes four minutes to boot up and then the ink dot printer is always out of ink. And then what are you going to do? You get it, you get online with your dial up modem and it's just not, it's not there, which is a very different claim from the claim that it'll never be there. Well... I, I mean, since we don't have a definition of it, I don't know how we like. If you're looking for gold, I don't know how you find gold if you don't know what gold is. Well, I'm trying to I'm trying to give right. you a few definitions, like the one about it, it starting to ask questions that you didn't tell it to ask. That would not count to me. But he, he, let me tell you, like, like here's something I'm writing right now. There's a program called Keti. Have you ever heard of it? No. C e t e t e t i. So it's using machine learning to analyze whale sounds. And their plan, and it's not crazy, it's not like artificial intelligence, it's not like artificial general intelligence or the movies or whatever, is that they think they might be able to talk with whales. Now, that's not impossible. That's not a fantasy. And that's what we should be, like, the mysteries that are going to emerge here are real, and they are crazy, and they are totally wild, but they're not going to be like the movies. Mm. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Although I do think it's a bit cheap. And also, yeah. that stuff could just not happen. Like, you could be listening to this and it'd be like, oh yeah, that's the first time I heard about how we're going to talk to whales. And then, or it could be five years from now, do you remember that crazy guy who said we mm, were going to talk mm. to whales and it never worked out? Yeah. Both of those options are totally possible. No, of course, absolutely. Uh, I mean, hence my analogy about the, the biologically engineered pandemic as well. You, uh, one doesn't need certainty on these questions. You just need to to play it out uh, in the various in the various possible futures, you don't need one hundred percent of those futures to to be certain. Um, the whole right. the uncertainty is the is the the concern. Um, but I also think it's a bit cheap to say that it, that because a worry resembles movies, that it has to be false. That strikes me as a logical fallacy. Well, see, oh, what I see happening here from using it is a calculator for language, and or like Alpha Zero 
what Althusser did for chess, doing it for language. And of course, we're really screwed up about language. Like if 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 cows could talk, we probably wouldn't eat them. Right. Right. Um, like it's getting over this hump of language that's really tricky. I don't see anything here that is happening that is different from what happens in chess programs or right. pocket calculators. Right, I see. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I take that. It's more of an extrapolation, and maybe partly the you know the extrapolations are the fantasies of people who've watched too, ma- too many science fiction movies, uh, but not everything that's ever depicted in a science fiction movie is worth ignoring because it was in a science fiction movie. I just reread. I reread two thousand and one: A Space Odyssey and rewatched the movie during the pandemic, and you know they, they nailed a lot of stuff and they nailed a lot of uh, predictions. There are things that end up unfolding because people have thought hard about them that they depict in art before the science or technology is is there. I mean, the language thing is interesting as well, Stephen, because you're probably better qualified than anyone to talk about this, having just spent so much time getting artificial systems to produce an entire novel. But when we say that all it's doing is trying to find the like best next word, mm-hmm. I, as something of a skeptic about the genius of human creativity at the best of times, I wonder if that's like a bit of a dead end in the sense that what are most of us doing most of the time that isn't that? Like, I mean, when we're talking to each other, most of what, what I'm doing right now is searching a database in my head of things that sound, of you know, mouth sounds that sound like they would be the most appropriate thing to say in this point in the podcast. Like, and your also, audience tunes in for those, yeah, text prediction trends. Yeah, right? yeah. Right. Like, I think that's a really interesting question. But what you are effectively doing is redefining humanity around a machine, which we do all the time. Right. I mean, when we got engines, when we got internal combustion engines, we thought, well, are we, how different are we really from a car? Mm. Uh, like, and when we got the first introductions to anatomy, we were like, well, are we really different than some flesh with electricity going through it? That's how we got Frankenstein. Yeah. Right. But there is always something human that is indefinable and mysterious and, and probably there permanently will be. And what I think we're actually going to discover is that, the valuable part of us, the human part of us, is exactly that mystery. Yes. And, and, the, mis- and the name we give to that is a soul. Yes. Yes. And maybe you and need... it's so unscientific. Maybe, yeah. And maybe you need that self-awareness to attain that. And that that's the only thing that makes me uh, have a a skerrick of a doubt about the materialist view of the, of the world being a, very much a, a kind of a on the atheist side of agnosticism, but the, the, yeah. the fact that it's like something to be me and that occasionally that sense of meanness can on very, very rare occasions create a Tchaikovsky or a Shakespeare, as you said, or a Proust or whatever. And, and that there's a, I think those instances are genuinely new. Like those, there are certain expressions. There are moments when our creativity transcends a mere cobbling together of everything that has gone before and seems to create something Shakespeare genuinely just new. took stories that existed before. Yeah, that's true. Put them he's in actually a bad, structure he's a with, bad example because he's a populist in, <laughs> in yeah. creativity. But you know what I mean? Like there are, there are moments of the divine uh, in, 
in yes. art and science. And so I wonder whether you think having written a book with an artificial system, like the, the, the novels that you see at the airport bookstore, which you just sort of pick up and just inhale, will those all be written by AI in 50 or 100 years? I mean, 50 or 100 years is a long time. I, I, I think I can say with some confidence that in five years they won't. Um, but beyond that, you know, this technology is so unpredictable. Who the hell knows what they're going to come up with, right? Or what it's capable of. We don't really understand it. So uh, I think certain things will be. But I actually think this tech is going to be used for new creative forms. Like, I think we're in the cannibalization stage. But, you know, we haven't had a creative chatbot yet. Not a really widespread one. Mm. Someone's going to invent it and make a mint on it. Um, but what it looks like and how it works, how people will interact with it. Like, will you buy your children a friend that yeah. talks to them? Yeah. Um, like, that's those are the more interesting questions. I mean, you know, random thrillers are already so formulaic. I don't really think it would be a big loss to have them written by a machine. No. No, I'm not saying it would be. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. clearly, clearly the the general generic pap of uh, of output will be done by machines. You know, uh, a, a generic kind of thriller. Uh, you know, a John Grisham novel based on all the other John Grisham novels that have been written. Uh, a lot of news copy, which is just about something that happened and doesn't need you know a particularly interesting opinion. In fact, many opinion pieces don't have a very interesting opinion and could be done by uh, chatbots in the near future as well. Um, but I still think there'll be something that the human can contribute creatively. Oh, absolutely. That, that oh, no, no, no. I think what's will. about to happen is that originality will be much more valued. I mean, I think this right. has already started to happen with my, my kids in high school, right? And what, what I'm sort of seeing is like the capacity to write a well-structured argument, you know, what I spent my life learning how to do, that becomes very easy to do with chat gpt but intention expressing your your yourself um that that's going to become much more valuable just organically mm. because you know the machines won't be able to generate that you know we I, I mean in one piece i wrote i said that we we taught children how to write like machines now we're going to have to teach them to write like human beings and mm. i actually believe that mm. like automated text will become much less valuable you know, like, it'll be like um, when you get a letter from your bank that says, dear Mr. Marsh, you are one of our most valued customers, and you just throw it away. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, there's already a lot of automated language. Yeah. Um, and we ignore it. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that we still, I, I, I must find a guest who can talk about doing away with all that. There is so much flotsam and jetsam yeah. in our lives of like, you know, you call up the automated line. They give you terms and they, you know, they say your call may be recorded for quality assurance yeah. purposes. Uh, they say due to unprecedented call volumes, you know, our, you know, agents are experiencing uh, delays. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, w w how long is it unprecedented for? You, you just zone it out, <laughs> don't you? Like, <laughs> that, that word may not mean what you think it No, means. exactly. I think it's very precedented by now, actually. This, it happens yeah. every time I call. There is a precedent. Uh, I can point to many precedents. Um, but, you know, it's like, especially since the, the pandemic, you know, uh, due to that, that, that happened and it's just never gone away. How do you erase all of that stuff from our lives? That would be, that would be a good use of AI, right? I mean, that well, would I be a great thinking, use like, of AI. I went and saw John Wick 4 yep. and 
it was so long and they like literally at one point he fights his way up these stairs and yeah. it's great then he gets kicked to the bottom of the stairs and he has to do it all over again he and it's like we've already done this for 20 minutes yeah like, like and, and so and the the dialogue in john wick 4 it wasn't written by an ai but if somebody told me it was mm. uh, like i would not be surprised mm. like you don't need people to write dialogue like mm. you know do you think you're going to have to do it again? Probably. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like you don't, you don't need machine, you don't need human beings to do that. Why no. not do it by machine? That's true. And in fact, a machine would do a better job because you could tell the machine to just cut out the final forty minutes of the movie. <laughs> well, you know, th that's already decided by machines. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean? it's not not that's very already well. decided by some algorithm. I mean, when you say that John Wick is long, my. God, I don't mean to be a whinging old person, but I've actually started, Stephen, going to see movies knowing that I will walk out of them quite happily. Wow. Quite happily. I'm, I, like, I went to see Fast and Furious 10 and John Wick 4 and Guardians of the Galaxy 3. They're all three-hour, yeah. you know, three-and-a-half-hour movies or something. I, wanna, I want 80 minutes of cars, you know, blowing up. I want to eat my popcorn and have my ice cream, and then I want to get the fuck out of there. I'm done. You know what I mean? And that was fine. I, I don't need it. I don't need three hours of this. I used to be the uh, film critic for Esquire, and I reviewed all of the, like, Avengers and all that stuff and Spider-Man, and I just, it broke me. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Like, I just can't go and see them. It's the same beats over and exactly over and over Exactly the again. same beats, which is it's like nice if you poster. love the beat. I mean, you know, I make sure that I'm not late because I know that the opening sequence is a, is a cool action sequence. And then there'll be a little bit of, there'll be a few funny scenes. If it's a Marvel film, you know, they'll, they'll do something whimsical An Ant-Man will come out and give some quips and then there'll be another yep. action scene and then I can leave. See, this is the point I made in the afterward of the book. It's like, we, people are scared of AI creativity, but we're already in this space of total derivative culture where everything is formulated to an utter extreme. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine it getting worse. Yeah. That's true. It'd be interesting to see the top what... ten movies, all sequels, twenty twenty two. Really? Is that like, right? Yeah. Well, one was a reboot. Wow. Like one was the Batman, but or but the rest were all sequels. And you know, this was the first year that new music was in decline. Mm. Like people are accessing archives rather than mm. new releases. Mm. This is also part of AI creativity. Why it's a potential boom to get us out of this. That's interesting. I mean, if you told an AI to take John Wick 4 and combine it with Kramer versus Kramer or Ordinary <laughs> People or American Beauty. <laughs> they have a divorce fight up the stairs? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, take one of the great, one of my favorite films, you know, from the past and just combine it with whatever shit it is that we're p pumping out at the moment and see what it comes up with. That'd be fun. Well, you could do John Wick and put Steve McQueen in it. Sure. I mean, right, that's doable yeah. right now. Yeah. You'd have to do it at home, but, you know, very doable. Or, I mean, you can't tell me that a John Wick written by a hallucinating AI wouldn't be better than John Wick 4. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. would be. Yeah, interesting. Uh, just, I want to come to this question of having friends. You mentioned, uh, you know, am I going to get a chatbot friend for my kids? Or, you know, I can easily imagine that we are not very far away from personal assistance. Like, I'm fascinated by what Apple's doing here, Stephen. Because, yeah. you know, Apple is always, 
Apple's strategy is always don't be first to the party. Wait, let exactly. everybody else figure it out, and we'll yeah, come right. in. You know, the BlackBerry was around. They yeah. didn't come out with the iPhone first. That wasn't the first, you know, smart device. Let somebody else do it. And while ChatGPT, while everyone's gushing about ChatGPT, what's Apple doing in the background, and what are they coming up with that they'll release in two or three years? Anyway, whatever that is, assume that it's like a, a personal assistant. I can imagine that we're almost at the point at which my kids who are five cleaning up their clothes and brushing their teeth and doing the morning routine and getting their breakfast cereal could be massively helped if they had a friend on a smart, smart device who could help them do it instead of me nagging them about it. I would be enormously helped if I had a really pleasant to interact with non glitchy system that could just say, Hey, by the way, just noticed that airfares to Bali have dropped by 40% if you want to jump on that for your September holiday. Oh, boy. You know what I mean? Think of the advertising in that. Sure. Um, I'd hand myself over. You know? <laughs> it's yeah. very interesting because this has less to do with the tech than to do with the social response. Yes. Um, and there are some examples. Like they wanted to try and build a chatbot for uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh-huh. because it's – it's pretty much standard advice. Like, I mean, it, it varies, but it, it's much more regulated and regular than talk therapy or other forms of therapy. But it didn't work at all because it turns out a massive reason people go to the therapy is to have human contact, mm. right? And just actually be face to face to face with people. I mean, I think a chatbot for children is kind of the holy grail. But it's also probably a poison chalice. Like, I mean, what are the social consequences of children who are interacting primarily with a bot that exists to please them? Mm. I mean, very dangerous. I'm not sure you would want that for your children. On the other hand, you know, educational chatbots, which are already being developed, those have, uh, you know, clear functionality. What do you think the first big change is going to be like when I, uh, I was talking the other day about some amazing counterintuitive ideas about, uh, chronology, just think things like, you remember National Lampoon's Vacation, that movie with Chevy Chase? Yeah. I don't know how that fits into any of the conversation. (laughs) Wait till I get, (laughs) just give me, give me one minute. (laughs) Um, (laughs) National Lampoon's Vacation was made closer to World War II than to today. Right. So, you know, like little things like that, or that like Cleopatra lived closer to the invention of the iPhone than to the construction of the first pyramids. Yeah. You know, these, these weird things, right? Yeah. The sweep of time. So, and I was thinking back and uh, I noticed that 9-11 happened before there were iPods. Yeah. There were no iPods, you know, the old brick, the, the, with the, the spin wheel that, that wasn't out in September of. Uh, oh no! Two thousand and one. They had to use. Uh, they sold out of uh, cameras in Manhattan that day. Right. Like, but like I'm not talking about my phone. Cameras. I'm just talking about the pod that held. You know, that was as heavy as a brick and held a hundred songs on it. Right. That came out in I think October of two thousand and one. The original iPod. Um, yeah. So that was. I was just, th- and I was thinking back on that, and I was thinking it, it's amazing to me that when I was fifteen and I made plans to go to the movies with somebody and they were late, I would just stand outside the cinema and, <laughs> and 
like just stand and just look at people, you know, and look at the sky. (laughs) And it was, and there was nothing, I mean, my God, there was nothing to do, Stephen. And there, and, and there was no way to tell the person there was no way to like, eventually if they didn't show up, I would just wander away. Like, you know, there was no way to communicate with them. And it's, it's amazing to me that it's amazing to me that that, that I was alive during that time because it seems so archaic now. So this is all a very roundabout way of saying, what do you think is about to happen that when we look back on 2023, we'll go, I can't believe that when Stephen and Josh were talking on that podcast, we lived in a world without X. Mm. Extremely hard to say that because this tech is unfathomable. So like, I mean, literally something totally mind blowing could come out tomorrow or not it, it, it's so hard to say like even even the internet you could sort of sense where it was going even this you really can't well can i try I mean, one on you and see if you buy it or sure. not um moving through our days communicating with machines as if they were sentient see i feel like i'm like halfway there like I'm talking to machines all the time. Do this, you know. Move. I mean, you know. But they're dumb. You're the only person who's. There's no illusion. I don't think when you talk to Siri or Alexa. That. Well, yeah, but remember, also people treat their personal assistants like they're dumb too, right? Like actual human beings, <laughs> right? Like that's true. Like, <laughs> like, like, if, like the idea that we're going to somehow be kind to these machines if they obey traits of if they show shades of traits of sentience like no we don't treat human beings that way interesting right we yeah okay i mean i think i think it i think it'll do something to my head maybe i'm big noting myself by assuming that if i had a personal assistant i wouldn't abuse them and i would take care of them <laughs> and i'd like them and i'd assume that they have an interiority that is relevant to the to the consciousness of the cosmos uh, but i think oh, that, it's, it's relevant just not to you <laughs> not to me somebody you, must give a shit you about pay this them idiot to ignore their interiority <laughs> um but i i i think it'll be I think when the when the machines are talking back to me in ways that make me laugh or make me surprised or make me as I'm walking out the door when they make a remark and I shake my head and I say okay wh- whatever Siri um when I have some kind of relationship where regardless of what's going on inside the machine which will be nothing initially at least I'm I'm behaving you know, you could look at my behavior and my behavior would be indistinguishable to the behavior of somebody who's relating to a conscious entity, which I don't think we do yet. Then I think once that's woven into the fabric of our lives, that, that will be a different world. It's so sweet, if you don't mind me saying, that your version of like the future with artificial <laughs> consciousness is, is this voice that bosses you around <laughs> and makes you smile. And then you get to say, oh, whatever. Like, like that's so that's nice. one That's one like, future. That's I've like, already articulated the other future and you shot that one down. The other future is I mean, it goes spiraling out of control I mean, and it enslaves me. <laughs> I hope you get there, man. I hope you find the robot of your dreams that like tells you like, should we go to Bali this weekend? And, uh, and it says, uh, you know, it's time to clean your room. Like, mm. like it's, 
I, I, but I, I mean, I don't know if that. I mean, why would it not? Uh, if there's a market, if there's a market for people having fewer things on their to-do list and fewer clutter, less clutter in their heads, which there clearly is, if you look at the success of getting things done by David Allen or any of these other productivity apps that might be out there. If there's a market for that, and if there's a technology that can use language learning models to assist us in predicting what I'm about to need or want. Some company is gonna is gonna do that, surely. You know, it's it's interesting. Like there was a case of I think the company was called Limonada. I may have it wrong. They were an insurance company and they broadcast that they were using AI facial recognition software to spot frauds. Now this is an obvious benefit. You know, we pay for all this fraud and it's going to decrease it just by this technology. People were outraged. And the outrage was so intense that they had to shut it down completely. And with AI, it's really hard to regulate it other than to stop it. It's either to mm. stop it or let it go, right, right? It's a kind of a zero or one proposition. And so this is a question where there's a real social benefit, but human beings don't want it. Well, I, I think that's the question. I would come back to reveal, uh, Stephen. I think there are revealed preferences, which is economists, you know, wonk speak for the things that we actually want that we reveal through our actions. And then there are the claims mm. that we make about what we want. And uh, I'm I'm a skeptic about people's uh, privacy concerns. I, I think we like to talk about it a lot. And then, you know, the other day, the premier of the state um, issued some vouchers, which parents can get for, which are called creative kids vouchers, which sometimes the, the state government will issue to try to stimulate things and, you know, help uh, families, uh, ease the burden on families. You get 150 bucks if you just register. So I go through to the uh, state government website, the portal, uh, where I get, uh, you know, benefits and tax, whatever, all that sort of stuff. And uh, it asks me to go back out and, like, log in using some other thing. And I'm like, oh, fuck, can't you just... Oh, that's right. It needs me to re-enter my driver's license number. I'm like, just save it in the fucking app. Like, uh, you know, I claim to want about to want privacy, but I also don't want to spend the yeah. extra eight seconds that it takes me to actually locate my driver's <laughs> license again. I just want them to store it there in the app. I claim to want privacy, and every time... Google doesn't, you know, autofill a password. I'm frustrated. I claim to want privacy, and every time the my travel agent website doesn't remember my credit card information and what my last booking was, I get annoyed that I have to re-enter the departure city as Sydney. You know, we don't want privacy. We want things to run smoothly. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, and you know, it's one of those things. Whenever you study politics, like it's like independence in the United States. Like, forty-seven percent of Americans claim to be independent. <laughs> yeah. But when you look at how they vote, they don't change their voting patterns ever. That the people actually change is about six percent, right? So, like, I totally get that. My point is that the way AI is going to develop is going to be determined socially, not necessarily by the technology, right? Yeah. Not necessarily by what's possible, by what we accept. Mm, mm. Interesting. You've written a political thriller with Andrew Yang. Yeah, that comes out in September. It's been a hell of a year, man. Incredible. How did that come about? You want to pitch it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, Andrew called me up and he, he'd read The Next Civil War. And he said, um, you know, you didn't talk about politics. Why don't, you, why don't we do a book together where we do a political thriller and I'll tell you how American politics actually works. And um, I said, yeah. 
And so he let me have access to everyone on his staff, including like humanization consultants and all the oppo research, like how that works. And so it's the most detailed and accurate political thriller of all time. And of course, it's pretty grim. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> like, like, like when you look at the reality of how this works, I mean, I just written the next civil war. I was not particularly mm. shockable, mm. but I was shocked all the time. By what? Oh, you know, at one point um, I'm interviewing Andrew and I'm saying, how does opposition research work? And he goes, we're talking about strategy. And he's like, well, they'll probably unload the book then, or maybe they'll unload the book a month later. And I was like, hold on a minute. When you say unload the book, is there an actual book? And he was like, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, every major American politician has a book uh, written about them, uh, which is everything bad they've ever done in it. Wow. And including everyone they've sat next to who has a horrible opinion at a gala or whatever. And, um, I saw some of these books and it's like, right. Every, no wonder American politics is only for masochists mm. because it's incredibly cruel. And but that would just be one example. And that's opposition like research the, putting together the book, or it's the campaign themselves putting the. It's the opposition book research. Well, both do it, mm. but um, yeah, it's opposition researchers, and they're just they just go in their day and do political, personal, you know, assassinations of people uh, of their character. That's what they do all day, the way that you and I are talking right now. Maybe. And um, that was just one part of it. The way that dark money works too was also like oh. How could this ever possibly work? Like, you know, nobody knows where the money comes from to elect the president. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, nobody knows. Like, the New York Times doesn't know. Like, the Washington Post doesn't know. Like, nobody knows. That's interesting, isn't it? So there's ostensibly rules against foreign actors. Not that this would be necessarily worse than domestic corruption, but there are rules against foreign actors donating to political campaigns in America. And I unwittingly made political donations while I was living in the United States as a foreign actor, and nothing happens. I mean, no. at least not in small fry, right? I mean, you just give the money, and then the money is gone, and it's left your account. Who's who's overseeing this? One thing that America's pretty good at is if you give them money, it tends to work out. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, nothing happens. They tend to be they okay take, with it. They take the money. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, I mean, I want to ask you about the future of, I guess, political and cultural stability amid all of this. So the sort of, sort of intersection of what you've learned from Andrew Yang and also from artificial intelligence, this will just be for our Substack uh, premium subscribers so thanks to everyone else for listening um but where is what is your prognostication are you like an optimist or a, or a pessimist big picture well I, I mean i think i'm a pessimist in local cases i'm actually optimistic.